Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today, I'm in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, about to interview someone that you're going to enjoy listening to. We're going to talk about a special type of problem that most of us have undoubtedly struggled with. This is a situation where your own personal values conflict with the external rules that are placed upon you. These external rules can be established by an employer, a spouse, a parent, or religion. In act, in this program, we've discussed acceptance to a great degree. The question is, how does acceptance fit into this type of conflict? How far do we practice acceptance of external rules when we feel physical symptoms of uneasiness or even panic, as these rules conflict with our own held values? Today you're going to get a chance to meet and listen to someone who spent 20 years of his adult life struggling and to finally find acceptance for his own values, which meant breaking away from the official Roman Catholic priesthood and jumping out into the unknown. Morris Monet Monier has been an educator all his life. In his early years as an ordained Roman Catholic priest, seminary professor, director of the, a master's program in education and leadership at La Loya University in New Orleans, and later is a director of the master's program in organizational psychology at John F. Kennedy University in California, and founding partner with his husband of the Vallarta Institute, which provides leadership coaching, capacity building, and evaluation services to to civil society clients all over the world. Morris has recently published a book on his spiritual journey entitled Confessions of a Gay Married Priest. He's also the author of many books and articles on leadership, social justice, organizational development, education, and spirituality. He is enjoying his 25 years of marriage with his partner, Jeff Jackson. He offers spiritual and counseling and life coaching. Welcome, Morris. Thank you. Delightful to be here with you. Morris, uh, we usually start this program by asking the man behind the author and the professional, what got you interested in wanting to go public with this very personal story of your conflict between your sexual orientation and the policy of the Catholic Church? Well, there are so many people out there, like myself, who are struggling uh, with uh, their religion or are struggling with their sexuality uh, or their orientation. And 
struggling with rules, and it's a very common problem. Um, and uh, and it's the best I can offer. You know, I've been a theoretician and an educator all my life, and I know how to use my left brain. But the best I can offer right now is out of my right brain, out of my experience, out of uh, my reflection on my experience, uh, and out of my journey. Mm -hmm. This uh, particular thing about external rules and your own rules, um, I know that you're a counselor today. Uh, do you find that this is a common problem, uh, this type of conflict between a person's own values and those placed upon them? It's as common as having parents. Uh, you know, we are, as, as children, we grow up under the aegis of our parents, and, uh, or a parent, or a combination of parents, whatever. But we have some form of authority, and we grow up in a culture, uh, and sometimes it's an ethnic group, uh, or we grow up within the context of certain organizations. And there comes a point where we need to really grow up and become adults. Mm -hmm. And psychologists may call that individuation. Um, but I had to go through that kind of process as a young man growing up in a very Catholic, uh, French Catholic, uh, ethnic community, and growing up within, in, in a seminary uh, and with the ideal of becoming uh, a priest. Morse, could we start off by you telling us a little bit about your background uh, in, in, in Catholicism? But tell us, just to give us a picture of what that looked like for you. Well, in our family, when I was a little boy with my two sisters, at 6 o'clock every night, we would be sitting in the, in the living room together reciting the rosary which is a series of prayers, uh, Our Fathers and Hail Marys and Glory Bees, you know, and every single night we would be doing this. It was a rule in our family to have dinner together and then to sit down and recite the rosary. And hell the, would freeze over the day we didn't do that. And, and uh, my father was very strict about it. Well, that was only part of the 69 prayers, I counted them, that we used to say every day, counting in Catholic school and in, <laughs> in the family. And, uh, and some of them were optional. Like, I would sometimes get up early, because my dad, who was a simple mechanic, a blue-collar worker, would get up in the morning, and he would kneel at one of the chairs in the, in the living room before he would have breakfast. And he would recite this string of prayers. Mm -hmm. And so I would come down as a little boy and kneel next to him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would act as if he didn't see me. Mm -hmm. And and I would say the prayers with him. Mm -hmm. And um, and But that was optional. But it was a beautiful bonding, you know, mm -hmm. with Dad. So I grew up in that, a very Catholic. Uh, and Catholicism changes depending where you are. I was of a French... Canadian kind of Catholicism. I grew up in New England, and uh, you didn't talk about sex. Uh, that was something really dirty about anything below the waist, if not below the head. And uh, so, so uh, sexuality was nothing you would talk about. It was something that was dangerous. Um, 
you know, getting someone pregnant was a, a big no-no. Um, well, in fact, marrying someone who wasn't Catholic was a big no-no. Or even worse, marrying someone who wasn't French was a big no-no. <laughs> so, so you can. You, I'm saying that just to illustrate the uh, how how very Catholic ethnic it, my my upbringing was, and I went into seminary, and that was actually freeing, mm-hmm. because uh, in seminary I, at 14, I I met people who were different from myself, came mm-hmm. from different parts of New England, mm-hmm. and uh, and. Um, we all spoke both French and English, mm-hmm. and but uh, in seminary, I also gravitated toward a more progressive, um, the more progressive teachings and, and theology, and uh, and as I got into my twenties, I went to school at Boston Theological. Uh, and I was a part of a Jesuit school there, a theology school. Got my degree, and we could take courses at any of eight theology schools at the time and we had a choice of we had to take 24 courses I believe it was and but we had a choice of eight theology schools mm-hmm. including very evangelical to Jewish and mm-hmm. Episcopal and, and various sorts of Catholic and it, it, it was just a broadening education education and so I started individuating pretty much at that time Mm-hmm. And individuating, that, that means? That means uh, creating my own spirituality and my own religion and my own thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a, it's a process that many people begin and it, it scares them out of religion. Mm-hmm. You see, um, I, I knew very early on that questioning the teachings as I understood them as a child was not leaving a religion or leaving a particular faith. It, it, was, it was a normal part of growing up. And so I reconstructed in my mind, well, what's the meaning of the rosary? What's the meaning of the Catholic uh, sacraments? What's the meaning of the mass? Uh, what's, what's priesthood all about? And, and why, what's, why aren't women priests? Why aren't, uh, you know, why are why are priests? Why do they have the, a particular kind of role and honor that they have? And why isn't that accorded to the layperson? And we questioned all of this. And this was in the in the late '60s and in the '70s. And and uh, I was in a class, for instance, with Episcopal some of the first Episcopal women who were mm-hmm. ordained priests. Mm-hmm. We were in classes together. So I grew up individuating. In other words, coming to my own interpretation of the tradition and of the religion. Okay. So at some point, this became a conflict for you. And how did you notice that? Well, I noticed it as soon as I began noticing my sexuality, (laughs) that it was different. There was something about me that was different. And I didn't have words. You know, I I wasn't... I didn't live in circles where other people... There were other gay people like myself, and I couldn't call myself gay at the time. You know, we just—I didn't have a language, and I wasn't in those circles that had the language. And uh, and I kept denying that I was 
I would be gay or anything like that because that to me was being sissy or was being girly it was being you know um, transvestite or something weird or pederasty for that matter and it, it was that was very offensive to me and I didn't want to identify with that so how could I speak about myself? And I really struggled, and, and it was very hard to do so in a milieu in which sexuality was not discussed very well, especially in a celibate Catholic clergy environment where it was a touchy subject. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yet, we talked about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So eventually, um, I started experimenting because I was a very lonely person. I was dreadfully lonely. And uh, and so I, you know, I just encountered other people. Many of them were seminary students. A few of them were seminary students, and uh, and we could hold each other. You know, we could uh, express our affection to each other. Uh, and it was very mild, actually, but it it was big thing for me because I was learning what my body was like and so on. But that, that was a terrible struggle, and it lasted for me uh, a, a good 15, 20 years. Uh, and, but what happened was my, I would get more and more lonely, and, and I felt more and more isolated because there was something missing in my life. And that was the physical? It was more than physical. It was intimacy is the best word. You know... Um, Intimacy was more important to me than the, the physical. I mean, sure, there's a physical drive, but it's, I was lonely. And uh, I wanted to love somebody, and I wanted somebody to love me back. It was simple as that. And, um, and it wasn't happening, so I was dreadfully lonely. Now, is, um, do you think that's a common uh, in, in religions that practice celibacy? Uh, yes, I, I, my opinion is that very few people are called to celibacy, uh, and it's it's a leftover of our uh, the enforcement of celibacy for clergy. I think is a leftover of our our Western bent toward uh, degrading the sexual and and elevating the mind and the head, and not being in touch with our senses and our body and what our instincts are telling us. I remember reading in your book um, that you had a hard time uh, thinking that what you felt could be wrong, that if God made you with your instincts, that how um, that, that was in conflict to the... How could that be? Right. I love that saying, God don't make junk. And, <laughs> and, and, and my tradition was telling me, you're junk, you know, there's something wrong with you. And, and, uh, and so I partly believed it and partly didn't. And... Mm-hmm. In which is a struggle of individuation. You know, you, you partly take on the tradition, you partly reject. And, uh, but as I went on, I was rejecting it more and more. But rejecting it for me meant, when I was around 40, 42, it meant leaving a profession, uh, a career that I had built for 30 years. How did you? How did you come? That must have been an incredible decision to make with your background. It was a very gradual decision, but it came to a head when I was on a retreat. I was in Gloucester, Massachusetts, at the Jesuit retreat house there, which is a beautiful place on the ocean, and I had eight days of silent retreat, 
That's what I liked. No talking, just spent hours, spend hours a day, you know, walking the property and praying. And uh, and I was praying about St. Francis uh, because I'd, I'd been reading his biography by Julian Green. And uh, I was thinking, I am really jealous of Francis. He was so loved, you know, by God and by the universe. He was... And I, and I loved his simplicity and his poverty. And poverty had been a theme in my, my career because I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on a Brazilian educator by the name of Paulo Freire, wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I spent, I went to Latin America and I spent time living in the slums in Brazil and traveling all over. And I would teach about the, the basic Christian communities that were in these communities of poverty. And I really believed in my heart uh, of... The, the depth of God's love for the poor, and I still do, very, very much so. I think they have a favored place in the universe. And uh, so I was very jealous of Francis, and I was realizing it. Well, about 5 o'clock one afternoon, I suddenly started feeling this sensation in my chest as if I was being drawn into my chest, and, and I just started getting very frightened and I didn't know what was happening to me because I was, you know, rather stable. Uh, and and I went to my room, and I don't know. I don't think I even went to dinner. I was. It was. I just felt like I was going to die, and uh, and I felt like someone had grabbed me by the chest and was throwing me against the wall, and it was terrifying, uh, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, and that night I, I went to bed and I left the door, my door ajar in case somebody needed to get in to help me. But the way I fell asleep was by going over the different instances in my life where I had taken a risk, where I had leapt uh, into the unknown, um, where I had been guided by my faith, uh, by the God of poverty uh, that led me on. And I kept remembering very concrete instances from the time I was 19 years old. And I, I rehearsed those in my mind, and it calmed me down enough to feel confident to go to sleep. The next morning I woke up, at very early, and I got in my car, I left the retreat suddenly without telling anybody, and I drove for eight hours, and I cried all the way. Because a big realization hit me, that here I had been devoting my life to other people and to caring for the poor, the oppressed, and the systems that oppress them, and, and suddenly I realized I am being thrown into my own poverty as a human being, as my personal poverty, which for me gravitates around my body, my sexuality, my orientation, and this decision. And I cried. And the reason I cried was that it was so beautiful that God was just saying, okay, you've done enough for other people, focus on yourself here. You know, you've got, you've got these issues and you are in need, you are poor, you are oppressed, deal with it. This is your path to me.
And you left. And I sought counsel. I saw a psychologist who told me, you had a panic attack. I said, oh, good. I said, now what do I do? He said, breathe. And so, you know, I worked with the, the psychologist who is a darling man. He was... He really helped me to see how lonely I was and what was going on. He, and uh, I worked with a spiritual director. I worked with Henry Nowen, who was a very famous um, spiritual teacher uh, from Holland. And, um, and I just gave myself some time to see whether, what my decision would be. Because as far as my faith was concerned and my relationship with God was concerned, I had a choice. And I, between two goods, stay in the priesthood but adjust the way you live and, and find a way of living celibacy that's healthy and wholesome, or leap and go live in some other uh, context. Morris, you take up in your book um, a disappointment about having to make that choice. Uh, you took up at, that, you, um, uh, that it was the Catholic Church turned a blind eye to having temporary relationships or secret relationships or but but a, an actual established uh, a contracted partnership uh, was forbidden yes the, and that your disappointment of um, this type of uh, uh, hypocriticalness of if it was like almost like in the US military don't don't tell, ask, don't, tell, don't right. exactly right and a few years after uh, I left the priesthood I wrote a letter to church it was, uh, came out of my meditation, and it was basically saying that, you know, you, you countenance hypocrisy, you know, you countenance, um, you know, sexual behavior that's, that's, that, that's hidden uh, uh, among your clergy, uh, and, but someone like myself who brings out into the open and is, is honest, and a person of, of faith, and a person who loves the tradition and the church, you know, it, it, it got me, it gets me angry still. Um, however, I, I came to an acceptance. It, it took a little while, you know, it, it took about seven years for me to come to an acceptance about, uh, about the church. And, you know, it's, it's an old institution, it's got its own struggles, but I knew that I had to individuate. I had to make a decision for myself, and it meant leaping out of the priesthood because it, I would not have been able to to fight the good fight there, as some priests have done. However, you know, others have done it. I can name several priests and nuns who've stayed in, you know, with the struggle, and they're real heroes in my mind. Uh, I couldn't do that. It wasn't. It, I'm not my makeup. I needed intimacy in my life. Morris, uh, now you work as a counselor and, and meet other people. Would, how, what, how do you advise your clients that you work with about this type of values conflicts? Yes, I do a lot of. Uh, been doing. I've been an educator all my life, uh, and I've and now I'm doing a lot of coaching. I've done a lot of executive coaching in the last 15 years um, in large profit and nonprofit organizations, and. Um, I think this is a very normal struggle. Like I said, it's as normal as having parents it's, uh, and, and of a child having to come to his or her own. And we need to do that with, with religions as well. 
and we need to do that with organizations to, and it doesn't mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, one of the things I, you know, a lot of people come to me about religious issues and, and say, you know, your task is to become adult, but you don't have to throw that baby out with the bathwater. There are some precious uh, parts of the tradition that can really help your own personal faith and go there and find them and pull them out. But it, it doesn't mean you have to own them and go to church even. It, what it means is that you can borrow them and you can borrow from other traditions that make sense to you and, and construct your own religion, construct your own spirituality because it's the task of every adult. And do it with others. Do it in dialogue with others. Um, do it, um, you know, tap the tradition, talk with other people about what they find valuable, what they don't find valuable, leave it aside. But build that personal faith and do it in a community as much as you can. And it doesn't mean going to church for, for everybody. For some, it does. You you mentioned in the very beginning about parenthood and parents is also a good example of of as you grow up you have your parents' rules and I know that this decision for you uh, had some devastating consequences and it seems that you kept your values in the same way we're talking about the church that you you made an, uh, an effort to keep contact with your parents. Yes, and I. When I uh, decided to leave the priesthood, I announced it to my parents. I came out very fast to them. I said, I'm gay, and I'm in love. Uh, a beautiful man has come into my life, and I want to live with him. And my father's reaction is, uh, you should go hang yourself. And he was serious, on one level. But he's also a very simple man, and I knew deep down he didn't mean anything. But I walked out anyway. Um, and my mother came chasing after me at the car uh, saying, you know, you know we love you. And I said, well, thank you. And I drove off. But I didn't leave them, really. I continued the family rituals, um, not of saying the rosary, but of sending gifts. You know, we, we would send gifts for birthdays and Christmas. We would keep in touch. We would make phone calls. I continued the rituals as if nothing had happened. But my father would not visit with my partner and I, and uh, and and I and I found a way of of handling my visits with them because I knew that my father especially was explosive, and so I would call them and say, "I'm coming from California to New England to visit with you." Uh, do you, do you want me to come? Do you have some time to be with me? And it, they'd say yes. And uh, I'd say, well, I've got between 11 and 1 on Tuesday, and I can meet with you. Uh, are you available? And they said, yes. And so I would say, I'll see you then. So come 1 o'clock, I would turn to them, and I'd say, you know, um, my partner and I are are going to dinner with... with uh, my sister, and, and uh, we'd, we'd like to invite you. Why don't you come with us? And they say, oh, no, no, we're, we're eating at home. Well, this went on for 13 years that they never met my partner, Jeff. And, um, 
and that I had to go see them alone, while my partner Jeff stayed next door at my sister's house. And uh, during those years, I had to grow in acceptance. I had to grow just realizing it, and it came gradually. I, I, it, I had to fight some things within myself uh, around accepting them as they were. And, and it, it, it happened. It, slowly, as I worked through some, some of these difficulties, I, I was without uh, conditions when I would go see them. You know, I didn't care if they, you know, if, if they approved of me or if they loved, I, I wanted them to love me, but uh, I didn't care if they approved, if they, you know, if they said nice things or if they wanted to meet Jeff or not, uh, you know. And I let go of that and, and just came with them was, with love that was as, as unconditional as I could at the time. And after 13 years, I went home once in the same the same ceremony went on and my sister says they're coming to dinner tomorrow night I said you're (laughs) kidding she said no they're coming to dinner I said I don't believe it I said ask him in front of me and she did she says dad she says "Uh, we're we're having dinner tomorrow night at 6 o'clock right and my dad my my sister's really good at taking control she didn't ask him she just said you're coming and he said yes yeah he says, Mom and I are coming. And sure enough, they showed up, never a word about those 13 years. And I told my partner that Jeff, uh, Jeff, uh, my dad likes playing cribbage. And so Jeff and my dad became cribbage partners. And we became best friends. But I think part of it is, you know, it, we, we need to just accept, like accept the church the way it is, you know, and work with it and make and individuate. Do your thing, you know, choose your values, live out your values, even if you're wrong. You do it the best you can, you know, and, and the church, you know, has its issues, but it has its thing, qualities, it's, it's got things that it's protecting, things that it has to do to hold itself together. But I've got mine. And I've got to make my decisions. And like every adult has to do. Morris, we've come to the end of our program. Uh, we have radio listeners out there, I'm sure, that with their own values conflicts in the workplace or you know, within families or religion or schools. What advice could you give our radio listeners about feeling in this values conflict? I guess own own your own values. You know, find out what your own values are, and it doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't have to throw dad and mom away. You don't have to throw your religion away. You don't have to throw your social group away. You might, but you don't have to, and it's your choice of living. And it takes a lot of courage to do that uh, at times, and. But it's, it's what growing up is all about. Thank you so much for being on our program today, Morris. You're very welcome. Pleasure. You've been listening to Morris Monet. He is an educator and uh, who has, was, an early, was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest, a seminar professor, and 
worked in different programs. Uh, he's recently come out with a book uh, describing his spiritual journal entitled Confessions of a Gay Married Priest. He's also authored many other books and articles on leadership and social justice. Morris, uh, you can read more about Morris and his books by clicking on his name on this week's program of ACT, Taking Her to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne and her work, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website icon in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. Joanne's books are available through Amazon.com, including her two latest, The Diet Trap, Feed Your Psychological Needs, and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and ACT and RFT in Relationships, Helping Clients Deepen Intimacy and Maintain Healthy Commitments Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Rational Frame Theory. Amazon also carries her books on chronic pain and other topics. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT taking hurt to hope.